Go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. This series we're calling The Last Words of Jesus as we focus in on the last week of his life, his last moments with his disciples, the way the Gospel of John is structured. There's a microscope that focuses on the last things that he said to his disciples in this last week of his life. This week we're going to be in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, and you can find that on page 900 or 901 in the black Bibles that you'll see under your chairs. It's a really interesting text this week. It's called, uh, or the sermon I'm titling it, The Advantage, from one of the key verses in this text in chapter 16. Um, And what we see here is Jesus is about to leave his disciples, and he's telling them that there's actually a very real advantage in his leaving and then sending the Spirit. And that's not how we would see it. And I was just thinking about how often in life there are unexpected advantages. I don't know if you've ever faced a situation where you thought everything was going wrong, but then it turned out it was actually for your good, right? It was something that was a surprise, an unexpected advantage. Um, As I was reading and thinking about it this week, I found an article that talked about an unexpected advantage that comes out of economic recession, right? Uh, A lot of indicators show we might be headed for another one soon. We've had some in the recent past. But during an economic recession, for those of you that are young, which is like three-fourths of our church here, right? Recent college graduates. We found out that those who graduate from college during a recession, even though it looks bleak, even though it's hard to find a job, there's an unexpected advantage. And research has showed that those who graduate into the job market during a recession actually have much higher job satisfaction. Isn't that weird? It's like you're going into this world where there's no hope, no prospects, and those are the people, those are the generations who actually have the highest satisfaction in their jobs. And so there's this unexpected advantage. There's this advantage that we didn't expect, and here with Jesus' followers, he's saying, I'm leaving, and you're going to be sorrowful, and this looks like the worst possible scenario. But Jesus is going to say it's actually for your good. It's actually an advantage. And I just want to be honest. When I read this text, I kind of find it hard to believe as well. I'm I'm looking at the situation and I'm thinking, maybe you thought this. I wish I lived in the time where I could see Jesus face to face. Have you ever said that? It was really interesting. I was reading the commentary on on this text and it was saying, you know, I think we all say that. We all say, wouldn't it have been better if I could have seen Jesus face to face? And Jesus says, no, this is better. The age of the Spirit is actually better. It's for your advantage, right? So you're probably like me. You don't fully believe it, so let's look at the text, okay? Let's see what the text says. So we'll start in chapter 16, verse 1. We covered a little of this last week, but we'll kind of recover some of this territory. So starting in chapter 16, verse 1, it says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away or stumbling. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's the key verse. Let me read it one more time. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now I'm going to skip all the way down to the end to kind of get the dramatic conclusion of our text this morning. We're going to look at all the verses, but let's skip down to the end. We're kind of cheating, looking at the end of the story here. Chapter 16, verse 33. Let's look at this. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the promise that Jesus gives us. He's saying it's actually to your advantage that I leave. It doesn't seem like it, but it is. It's to your advantage that I leave because I'm going to send the Spirit. And he's saying you're going to have trouble. It's going to be hard, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Um, we pray that you would help us. We, we do have trouble. We know tribulation. We have difficulty. We ache. We long to see you face to face. And yet you say there's this very real advantage in this time that we live. You are at the Father's right hand in heaven, ruling and reigning as king of the universe. And we are here waiting and longing, but you tell us there's an advantage in living during this time and having the Spirit poured out here among us. Father, show us what that looks like. Show us how to trust you in the midst of our troubles. Help us to see your spirit at work among us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So as we think about this advantage, Jesus, as he moves through the text, and we'll look at these details as as we move forward, he's gonna show that there are three distinct advantages of the spirit being with us as opposed to Jesus being with us face to face, right? So we've all thought, man, I wish I could see Jesus face to face. And Jesus says, I'm leaving. I'm not going to see you face to face anymore, but I'm going to give you the spirit. And that is to your advantage. And the first thing he's going to say is that it's to our advantage because the spirit convicts, which sounds really negative and kind of is. But he's saying, but that's to our advantage, okay? The spirit convicts. And then he's going to say the spirit gives birth. There's this new birth taking place. The spirit convicts, the spirit gives birth. And then finally, the spirit conquers. There's this conquering. The very end, verse 33, is like, I've, I've overcome the world. I've conquered, right? Uh, and so we're going to see this outline unfold, the advantages we have now, the age of the Spirit. We all kind of wish we saw Jesus face to face, and his disciples certainly enjoyed that, and they were terrified that he was leaving them, but he says, it's to your advantage. This is actually going to be better when I go to the Father's right hand and I send the Spirit. So the first thing we're going to look at is how the Spirit convicts. And we see this in the first few verses. I read part of this. We're going to read a little bit more. If you pick up, there's kind of like a break in most of the different translations halfway through verse 4. So I'm going to pick up halfway through verse 4. It says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. And so there's some confusing language as we move through this text this morning. And what we're going to see is we're going to see Jesus talking about the heavenly realities that exist where we can't see in the presence of God in heaven. And then he's going to talk about the kind of face-to-face reality of him living and walking and doing ministry with his disciples. So right here he's saying, I'm not going to be talking with you anymore. That's kind of what he's talking about, right? I didn't say these things to you from the beginning, right? Because I was with you. So from the beginning I was with you, but now I'm not going to be with you. I'm not going to be face-to-face. So now I'm telling you this. Now I'm preparing you for this. Verse 5. Now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, this is interesting, right? None of you ask me, where are you going? Do y'all remember chapter 14? What did they say? Where are you going, (laughs) right? So there are limitations to human language. And the best way that I can understand this is if, say, your, your dad is going somewhere and you're a little kid 
and you don't want daddy to leave, but you scream, where are you going? You don't really care where he's going. What you mean is stay here, right? And that, that's the best way I can understand that. That, that that's, he's saying now, I wish you were more concerned with where I'm actually going, but you don't really care where I'm going. You're just throwing a temper tantrum and saying, where are you going? Does that make sense? So in chapter 14, they were saying like, where are you going? And you know, they're crying and they're like, we don't understand what's going on. And they're in turmoil. And here he's saying, you're not really asking where I'm going, right? If you knew where I was going, you'd be so excited. Chapter 14, verse 28, he, he said this more explicitly. He's like, if, if you knew where I was going, you would be so excited. And he didn't mean it like, I'm moving into a new apartment and you'd be so happy for me, right? Like, that's not, that's not what he means. He's like, I'm, I'm going to reign the universe through my death and resurrection. I'm going to be king. I'm going to be at the Father's right hand. If you got that, you'd be happy about the age that we're moving into. So that's where John gets a little confusing because John is always like zooming up to these big, huge ideas of Jesus' rule and reign as king of the universe. And then he's talking about like, and I'm not going to be talking face to face anymore. So he's kind of like zooming back and forth between his rule and reign as king of the universe and his little conversations with his disciples face to face. So he's like, you're not asking where am I going? Verse six, but because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he's saying here, this is the advantage, specifically sending the Spirit. And it's not like Jesus and the Spirit can't be in the same room. The sending of the Spirit is the fulfilling of all the promises of the uh, Old Testament. Promising this future new age of the new covenant, right? Like, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 and 37, this future amazing new age where God's spirit is just going to be poured out on all flesh and it's going to amaze us. It's going to be overwhelming. More and more people are going to know God. It's going to be present with them. That's what he's talking about here. And that is triggered by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So don't get distracted by like a mechanical way of thinking like, oh, okay, he's got to walk out of the room and then the spirit can like jump in the room. No, he's saying his death and resurrection is going to pour out his spirit on us. That's how we get the spirit, is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So he's saying it's to your advantage, right? Verse 7, this is to your advantage. I go away. If I didn't go away, the helper wouldn't come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. So his going away is his death and resurrection and ascension. Verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So, so this is the first advantage. Spirit's going to convict us, which again, it sounds negative, right? Um, another way to translate this would be the Spirit's going to prosecute you. The, the Spirit's going to convict you of your crimes. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like advantage to me, right? That sounds negative. And I would say it is negative, but, it, but it's a good negative, right? It's a negative we need. So let's see how he unfolds this here. So the Spirit's going to convict right? Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. They're basically summarizing what we would call the gospel, the good news. We're sinners. Jesus is righteous. He gives us life by faith in him. He goes on. Verse 12, 
I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. Very important to see the unity of what we call the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Fantastic book. Uh, I recommend it at the beginning of our John series. It's called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. It, it shows how the Trinity, God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is uh, an image of the gospel itself, the good news. It's good news that God is this loving community within himself because that's where we get love from, from God, who is from eternity past existed as a loving community. And here he's saying the Spirit doesn't like do his own thing. The Spirit says what he hears. The Spirit passes on what he gets from the Father and the Son. So, so look at this. This next verse is really good. Verse 14. They're all good, right? But you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Look at verse 15. He strengthens it. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He keeps going. He keeps making it deeper. He's saying, he's, he's saying the stuff that I've said. He's saying the stuff that the Father says, and he's glorifying me. The Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. Do you see that? He will glorify me. Now, we've talked about this some in the past. There are different varieties of Christians in the world, and, and we try to be as like non-tribal as possible, right? Like we're about Jesus. If you're about Jesus, come on, join us, right? Like we don't want to spend a lot of time, we don't want to waste a lot of time arguing over like secondary issues. Um, there's one thing that also often uh, separates Christians, and it's a focus on miraculous displays of the Spirit. And we're one of those people, I guess you could call us cautious but open in the sense that we would say, yeah, the Spirit can do whatever He wants to. If, if Jesus wants to heal people, if Jesus wants to speak in tongues through people, if, if the Spirit wants to do miraculous things, God can do whatever he wants to. I'm, I'm not going to say he can't do those things or that those things are over because they make me uncomfortable, right? But we tend to not focus on those things because this verse right here. It says the primary work of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus. Do you see that? So that doesn't mean the Spirit doesn't do other amazing things. The Spirit can do whatever he wants. But the Spirit's primary job is to glorify Jesus. And I hope you see how this is connected to convicting us. So convicting us is the negative way of saying it. I wanted to start there because that's kind of the surprising advantage of having the Spirit with us. But glorifying Jesus is the flip side of that. The Spirit convicts us of our sin and our brokenness and our lack of righteousness. At the same time, he's convicting us of Jesus' righteousness, of his grace. He's glorifying Jesus, right? Like he's magnifying Jesus as he shows us our brokenness. And so this is really important for you to understand in order to really appreciate how great Jesus is, you have to be convicted that you are needy and that you're a sinner and that you're broken. But it doesn't stop there. I think some Christians take this in a weird way where we almost make it like a salvation by brokenness, right? Like the more I talk about how broken I am, the more I talk about how sinful I am, somehow God's impressed with that. No, that's, that's our journey to seeing our need for Jesus. So we're convicted of sin. We recognize we can't save ourselves. We recognize our brokenness. We recognize we fall short of the glory of God, and that drives us to Jesus, who is the one who fulfills the glory of God, who fulfills the righteousness of God, the one who takes our place as our great substitute. And so here, the Spirit convicts us of sin, and the Spirit glorifies Jesus. I grabbed a picture here of someone going into an MRI. Any of you ever had an MRI or an x-ray? Anybody done that before? 
It's uh, sometimes a terrible experience, sometimes a good experience. There's this weird thing I've noticed. When I go to the doctor, my wife goes to the doctor, someone I love goes to the doctor, and the doctor doesn't know what's wrong with you. There's this like anger that builds up inside me. I don't know if you're this way, because you're like, but it's your job, right? To tell me what's wrong. That's what you're supposed to do. It's a really frustrating experience when you're having some kind of symptom and they just, they don't know why, they don't know what it is. And they can do scans, they can do x-rays, and they can do an MRI, but they're like, I don't know, you're just broken. You know, it's just like vague brokenness. But when you get an MRI or you get an x-ray, I broke my arm years ago, I got the x-ray, it's like, okay, my arm hurts really bad because there's a crack in it, right? Like it's, it's clear. There's just something really satisfying about knowing what's wrong. And, and that's how this conviction of sin is actually a good thing. It seems like a bad thing, but it's really a good thing because now you know what's wrong. Your problem is not that you need another degree. Your problem is not that you need more money in the bank. Your problem is not that you need another boyfriend or another girlfriend. Your problem is not that you need more pleasure. The problem is not that you need more numbing. The problem is sin. And only the Spirit can convict you of that. Only the Spirit can give you that scan, right? It's like, here it is. This is the thing that's broken with you. You have a heart that, that turns to other things besides God. You don't trust him, you trust yourself. You don't trust him, you trust in the gifts of creation. And so only a spirit can work this miracle, this amazing miracle of of seeing our need of Jesus. So one of my favorite verses that summarizes this is 1 John 1. So 1 John's the little letter later in the Bible um, that that John, the same author of this gospel, wrote. So 1 John, little letter, he says this in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. He says it this way. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Saying basically there are two ways to live. You can live as a liar and say you don't have sin. Or you can live with honesty, allowing the spirit to convict you and agreeing. Confessing means literally saying the same thing as when we confess it's not this form, you know, it's become this formal thing like you confess by going in a booth or talking to a person in a certain way. It just means saying the same thing as. If we agree with the Spirit that we're sinners, God will be faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us. And so my prayer for you and for me is that, that we would have those kinds of hearts where the Spirit convicts us of our sin, where we get the MRI, we get the x-ray, we're like, okay, I'm, I'm broken. I need Jesus. And that's what actually glorifies Jesus, right? That's when we see how great Jesus is. Before that, Jesus was just another guru. He was just another teacher. But when we understand our sin, our desperate situation that we can't save ourselves, then we see how glorious Jesus really is, that he took our place, that he took the punishment for our sins, and he gives us the resurrection life that we didn't have on our own. So that's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for us. As a corporate entity, as a, as a church, as an organization, we always want to make that primary um, churches, Christians historically have debated like what's the relationship uh, between our faith in Jesus and our good works in the community. I would argue the scripture is incredibly clear that Christians should be about good works in the community. We should help the poor. We should serve our neighbors. We should love people well. We should do deeds that match our words. But we need to be very careful as that becomes more and more popular in our society and our society doesn't want to hear about conviction of sin but they're happy to have us help the community. We need to make sure we don't lose this. 
because this has always got to be primary. This is the engine that drives our service to the community, right? Because we understand that God has helped us, that's why we want to help others. Because we understand this conviction of sin and we needed Jesus to save us, that's why we want to serve in schools or in community service projects or whatever it might be, whatever ways we're helping our neighbors and serving other people, we do that driven by the grace of the gospel. So we need to always keep that primary, right? It's, it's a relationship that's important. It's not that the church should only be about the gospel and, and the um, conviction of sin. It's just that should always be central. Because if we lose that, we're not a church anymore. We're just people helping people, which is great. It's great to help people, but we're not a church. We want to hold on to this because this is where the, the power actually is, is the Spirit convicts us of our sin. So I'm saying in this process, he is going to glorify Jesus and convict us of our sins. And as we think about the 1 John 1, 8 and 9 verse that says we either lie and say we don't have sin or we admit it and confess our need of Jesus and trust him, I want to just kind of clarify and drive this home a little bit before we move on to the next point. There are two ways that you and I lie about our sin, okay? Two ways we do this. And it kind of depends on your personality, kind of depends on where you come from. One way that we lie, which is becoming more and more common in our culture, is to say sin does not exist, right? You've probably heard that before. God doesn't care, sin doesn't exist, do whatever you want to, follow your own heart. There's no shame, there's no conviction, there's no wrong in this world. And I just warn you and say, be careful, that's a dangerous road to go down. The Spirit, if the Spirit is at work in your life supernaturally, He will convict you that sin is real and that we're guilty. But there's another dangerous way that we lie about sin, and that is through religion. That's by saying, I'm not like that guy over there who denies sin and he's so rebellious and wild. I'm good and religious. And so I'm saving myself by being so religious. I'm so upright that I don't sin anymore. That's another way for us to lie and say that we don't have sin. So whether you're religious or you're rebellious, either way, you can lie and say you have no sin. The Spirit convicts and says, no, you have sin. And Jesus is the Savior who's taking your place, who gives you life. Okay, next point is that the Spirit gives birth. Another advantage is that there's the struggle going on, and he's going to use the analogy of giving birth. Uh, I've joked about this before. Uh, Men, in general, you don't want to talk about birth as if you know what it's like. You just want to be careful about that, right? But but here, this is Jesus. We're going to give him a pass. We're going to like, okay, Jesus, the King of the universe, can do this. He created the whole thing created the process. So let's look at verses 16 through 22, where he basically is going to compare this age we live in, this age we think is bad because we don't see Jesus face to face, but he says it's actually good because the Spirit's being poured out. He's saying, yeah, it is hard, but it's a birthing process. Something good and beautiful is coming out of the struggle. So starting in verse 16, he says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. We'll pause there for a minute and just say, I hope this encourages you. It always encourages me when I see the disciples' confusion, right? It's like, yeah, I'm confused. What is he talking about? You read the Bible. What is he saying? They, they know how you feel. The disciples were in the same position that you and I often are. Jesus, we, we don't get it. Explain this to us. Look at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you'll see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep 
and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. The verse 20 is the key verse in this section. He's saying, um, it's going to be hard. You're going to cry. You're going to weep. You're going to have sorrow. And the world, the world that despises Jesus is going to celebrate. He's saying, but, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. There is a process. So the, the world we live in now, we saw this at the last verse, verse 33. You're going to have trouble, but take heart of overcome the world. He's saying, there's this process we're living through, and it's going to be sorrowful, and it's going to be sad. And we will feel broken, he's saying, but, but it's going to turn into joy. It's not going to just stop there. It's not going to be nothing but sorrow. Verse 21, he, he deepens the analogy here. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now again, limits of human language. There's a sense in which any of you who have given birth, you remember the anguish, right? What he's saying is that it is supplanted by the joy of this new life. It's not that like you can't recall, right? It's not like you're like, oh, I completely forgot any pain I had whatsoever, right? It's that the joy is so much better. And Paul talks about this in Romans 8, right? He says the, the, the glory surpasses any suffering we go through now. Read through Romans 8. It's very parallel to what Jesus is talking about here. It's this idea that we are groaning. We are longing. And all of creation is groaning with us. The, the mountains are creaking and the coyotes are howling and all of creation is groaning and longing for the sons of God to be revealed. But, but that glory far surpasses any suffering that we go through. Just like in childbirth, the, the joy of the child overcomes the anguish and the sorrow. And he's saying that, that's the time we live in now. So, so yes, is it a time of anguish and trouble and difficulty? Yes, absolutely. He says there's a, there's a childbirth that's taking place. There's a, a delivery of new life that is taking place here. So again, when a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus is explaining there, there's going to be real joy. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be difficulty, but there's also going to be real joy, genuine new birth. Now this new birth language is used repeatedly in John. Uh, we could go back to John chapter 3. Do you remember in John chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, one of the great teachers uh, in the Old Testament uh, among the Jews from Old Testament Judaism. He, he knew the Bible upside down and backwards. He knew all the truth. And he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, we can kind of tell God is at work within you. You know, we have questions. And Jesus kind of just stuns Nicodemus, this religious master, this teacher. And he says, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Like, it doesn't matter how much you know. You guys know a lot of Bible? Any of you grew up religious? You think you know the truth? You think you know the Bible upside down and backwards? Jesus said to Nicodemus, who knew the Bible better than any of you in this room, he said, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. New birth is required. And again, the advantage is we live in this age of new birth. That's the blessing that the Spirit brings. Through that conviction of sin, through that glorification of Jesus, he brings new birth. And again, Romans 8 blows it up to say it's not just new birth of us as individuals who now trust in Jesus and we now have life and forgiveness in him. 
but it's also new birth of the new heavens and the new earth, right? We're moving to that new age where everything's made right. And that's the connection that Romans 8 makes for us that Paul talks about. There's this longing of all of creation to see all of the sons and daughters of God to be born. Seeing all those who have new life in Christ, that's going to lead to the salvation of everything, right? The, the fixing of the cosmos. Because right now we live in this world of, of cancer and hurricanes and brokenness. And the age we live in is this transitional age where this, this new world is being given birth. And Paul says in Romans 8, it, it centers around new birth in individuals like you and me, trusting Jesus, having new life. Um, often that process, that anguish, the, the birth pains, right, the labor pains, if you will, in this delivery is us letting go of the false saviors. As, we, as those things are ripped out of our hands through suffering and difficulty and trials that we go through, God is lover, lovingly showing us that they can't save us. This world can't save us. My flesh can't save us. My smarts can't save us. You know, whatever it is that you've been relying on, that I've been relying on, those things are kind of getting torn out of our grasp in this world, in this age. That's part of the advantage of this age, the new birth process. We're letting go of the false saviors and we're, we're holding on to Jesus. Another new birth passage is in John 1, the very beginning of the Gospel of John. He says this, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So in the previous section, I said there are two ways we deceive ourselves. There's two ways we try to give ourselves new birth. One way, we try to give ourselves new birth by denying that sin exists and following our own heart, just doing whatever we want to, pursuing pleasure. But there's this other dangerous way of trying to give ourselves new birth, and that's through religion. That's saying, God, look at me. Look at how good I am. Look at how much I've done for you. Look at the sacrifices I've made. You owe me. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus talks about that with the prodigal son and his older brother. The older brother refuses to go into the party with the father. The older brother is like, I've made the sacrifices. You owe me this party. You shouldn't have given this party to the younger brother. You owe it to me. And we often can replay that same mistake, thinking that we can give ourselves birth. This new birth, John 1 says, it's not of blood, it's not the will of the flesh, not by your willpower, it's not by my willpower, but we're born of God, born of the Spirit. My question for you before we move on from this section is, what is it you're holding on to that maybe in this birth travail, God is saying, let go of that and hold on to me? What is it? What is it that you're holding on to? What is it that I'm holding on to? Saying, no, I need this. I can't live without this. God's saying, let go and trust me. We've all got things we've got to let go of. He's saying, let go of those false saviors, those idols, and, and cling to me. Trust me instead. This last section, we'll see that the Spirit conquers. It's cool language uh, with the word conquer. Uh, in verse 33, it says overcome. Uh, and that Greek word is Nike, or we have a shoe company called Nike, right? Uh, it's the Greek word for victory. Um, and so they, they stole it from Greek mythology. There's this ancient statue called Winged Victory, or the, <coughs> the Nike of Samothrace, or the Victory of Samothrace. It's the goddess of victory. The Greek word is Nike, Nike. And it's a really impressive statue. I don't know if any of y'all have seen this before. It comes from several hundred years B.C. What's so amazing about it is just how well it's done. It's missing a head. It's missing arms. And people still think it's beautiful, right? Um, kind of like the world we live in. It's, 
It's broken, but we can still see the glory of the fingerprints of God upon it, right? Human beings, we're broken, we're sinful, and we can still see the imprint that we're made in the image of God. Well, this statue, this statue of victory, one of the things that art historians and people that know more about this than I do would say is that there's motion in this piece of work. So it's a statue made out of stone, but when you see it, of course, it's not a very high contrast photo. You'll have to go see it for real. Um, it's moving. It's, it's intention. It, it's not just it has arrived kind of victory, but it's actually in process. And so as I was studying up on this, I thought, you know, that's a good example of what's happening for us right now. Uh, Jesus says, I have conquered the world, but there's a sense in which that conquering is taking place. So Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is reigning at the Father's right hand. And that reign, that kingdom rule of Jesus, is delivered by the Spirit through our lives. That's the time we live in right now. So that Paul could say he's filling up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And that's a scary thing, right? Because as Paul talks about this, Paul says, as I suffer... I get to join in Jesus' suffering. There's this mystical union that you and I have with the sufferings of Christ as we suffer with him, as we suffer in this world and the travail of childbirth and trusting Jesus, the Spirit is working through our lives. More and more, we're knit together with Jesus as we rely on him. He's conquering through us. And so what you and I think of as losing, right, if you've got cancer, or if you've gone through a heartbreak, or if you've gone through some kind of horrible difficulty, as you cling to Jesus in faith, that's you conquering. That's the, the New Testament way of seeing this. Um, one of my favorite cross-references on this is in, again, 1 John. 1 John's a great cross-reference for John because it's written by the same guy, right? 1 John 5 says this, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So how do we overcome? How does the Spirit overcome? Through our faith, as, as we trust in Jesus and his overcoming. So let's look at the, the main text here in John 16. So we'll look at verses 23 through 33. It's kind of a long section, but it's going to end with that kind of triumph of take heart, of overcome the world, okay? So starting in verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So again, he's talking kind of humanly speaking, you're not going to ask me stuff face to face anymore, but I'll be at the Father's right hand, so you will pray to the Father because I'm not going to be standing right in front of you anymore. Verse 24, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I'll tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. We need to stop there for just a second. He's saying this is a very present reality. The Father loves you already. It's one of the most amazing benefits of the Spirit at work in our lives, convicting us of sin, glorifying Jesus that we can trust him, showing us that he's conquering through us and that new birth is taking place is that we know, you know, I know that the Father loves me right now. Do you believe that? That the Father loves you despite your sin, despite your rebellion. He's taken all that on Christ on the cross so that the Father looks at you and sees you as delightful. He loves you. He's pleased with you in Christ. That's the good news. 
The Father loves you. Again, verse 27, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me. You have believed that I came from God. Verse 28, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world, and I'm going back to the Father. His disciples said, this is really interesting, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. I don't know what changed in their minds, but all of a sudden they think they understand him, okay? This is really kind of strange. Oh, now you're not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you, that you came from God. I don't know exactly what's going on in their mind, but sometimes when you're having a confusing conversation, I know I do this, I'm like, oh, uh uh-huh, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. You ever do that? Like, oh, yeah, I get it. And you have no idea what they're talking about. I think that's what the disciples are doing. Because look at verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? (laughs) He's like, "Uh, I don't think you really get it. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the Father is with me. So he's saying, okay, you're, you're saying, yeah, 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 I get it. Now you're speaking plainly. I don't think you really get it. You're going to be scattered. Like he's like, okay, guys, maybe you think you're getting it, but there's still going to be some non-gettingness that's going to take place here, okay? You're going to struggle. I'm going to be all alone, and you guys are going to abandon me, but I'm not really alone. The Father's with me. It's going to be okay, but you're, you're going to struggle. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be fearful. You're going to wander. And I, that's encouraging to me. Because again, I see these first followers who saw him face to face and they went through the same kind of trials that we go through. They're, they're confused. They struggled. They doubted. They had problems with believing. He said, it's going to be okay. Verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is a promise. Promise number one that you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. You're going to struggle. Trusting God, obeying him doesn't mean everything's going to be rosy and there will be no difficulty. This age we live in, he's saying there's a very real advantage to living in this time. The advantage, though, is not that we're in heaven and there are no problems and no tears. There are all these struggles that are going to continue to happen, but he's saying through this process, my spirit is being poured out and I am overcoming the world. He says it like it's done. I have overcome the world, right? It's sure. It's a promise that we can rely on. And so all the previous stuff he said about asking in my name, asking in the Father's name, we've seen that repeated throughout the section of John. He keeps saying we should pray, we should ask, we should trust, we should ask in his name. And we've said this before, asking in Jesus' name doesn't mean like, God, I want a new car. If I say in Jesus' name at the end of that, then I magically get it, right? It's not like a magic spell saying we need to ask according to his will. We need to align ourselves with what he's doing in the world. And as we do that, we're going to get more of him. And that's what he's calling on us to do here. That's how we know that peace, uh, that peace is by trusting him and asking him, calling on his help. And we will know the peace of this conquering king. Who again, 1 John 5, 4, everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. We also, who have been born of God, are these Nike overcomer victory people saying we have the same victory in Jesus because we're trusting in him. And so we also overcome the world. This is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except those who believe that Jesus is the son, the son of God? Our, our faith is the means by which we know this peace. And the spirit is supernaturally pouring that faith out on us. Our, our job is to trust, to follow, to believe what he's done for us. Do you 
believe that. This is where the entire Bible ends, so we'll end here. The advantage of living in this age of the Spirit was repeated in the book of Revelation. So the last book of the Bible, very confusing book, a lot of symbolic stuff. Um, It's one of those things that a lot of Christians disagree on. The one thing I would say all Christians of all traditions agree on is that the main theme of Revelation is Jesus wins. That's it, right? We can disagree on post-mill, ah-mill, pre-mill, pre-trib, post-trib, whatever. All these different views of the order of events, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. The advantage of this time is that the Spirit is growing that confidence in our hearts so that we see that He has overcome. It says in Revelation 5, who is worthy to open these scrolls? Who is worthy? It says, the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy. He's the one that overcomes. And those of us who believe in him overcome with him. Let me pray. God, thank you for the confidence that you give us supernaturally by your spirit that you are at work, that you do love us, that you've given us new life in Christ. Help us to overcome the the trials, the difficulty, the troubles we live through now. Help us to believe that you have overcome the world. God, we pray that you would pour out your spirit, that we would know more of the supernatural reality of trusting you, of being convicted of our sin, but also seeing you glorified, Lord. Seeing more of Jesus. Help us to see more of him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.